It's Wednesday, January 28th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. Nice to be here. Welcome back. And to you. Were you sick? I was sick last week, yeah. You still sound a little hoarse. I'm, yeah. That's, I'm just drinking my requisite five gallons of hot tea with honey. And, uh, Strong with. Yeah. And then I can't wait to be rid of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I say welcome back because you were recently in China, and we're going to talk about your trip, and we will talk about Apple and their latest quarter because China is part of that story as well. But let's start with Greece because this is a story, I think this happened while you were maybe on your trip back. It was certainly while I was laid up. Greece uh, went out, as countries do, and, and had themselves an election and got themselves... Go democracy. Go democracy and got Woo. themselves a brand new prime minister, um, Alexis uh, Tsipras. I'm, I'm, Spiros? Spiros. Spiros. I'm absolutely mispronouncing that name. Um, and Greek is hard. It's a difficult one. <laughs> and this new government appears very interested in rolling back, if the headlines are to believe, in rolling back the austerity measures. Well, that was their that was their campaign platform. It basically, the the tough medicine that has been enacted over the last few years to get the Greek economy, uh, to get the the country's balance sheet, if you will, uh, back in order. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna roll all that back. Yeah, they've already they've halted all the planned privatizations. Uh, I believe they've said the first thing they're going to do um, is to re-raise the pension um, payout from 500 euros a month back to 750 euros a month or something like that. And obviously this has creditors up in arms who have been very, who they believe have been, they themselves believe they've been very generous about granting Greece uh, generous credit terms as long as Greece is willing to show some progress in terms of right-sizing its balance sheet. And now this new party, Syriza, has said, you know, hey, we're totally interested in negotiating with you on debt reduction, um, but yeah, we're going to go back to doing all the all the things we were doing before. So, I mean, Greek bonds have collapsed. Greek banks are way way down, 30 percent down, mostly because the market fears there's there's an imminent default coming. And then what happens after a default? Is the market right? You know, I, I frankly I can't square the circle of how you can service your debt while going back to the outflows from the government level um, that Greece, that Syriza wants to go back to. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways to avoid a default sort of on, on the margin in terms of negotiating and, and moving covenants around and, and, and what have you. But I don't, I don't know what interest it is in, in foreign creditors to, to do that for Greece. Um, ultimately, that probably gets unless, – unless Syriza comes back. You know, and the world is littered with examples of people who campaigned on one thing and then, you know, ran back – you know, when it came to policy, went a little bit back towards the center. Um, you know, but Syriza was a niche political party, and this this has catapulted them to the to the, the control of the Greek government. And and so, who who's to say what they're going to do? But I I, I don't I, if people do not change their current negotiating stances, it's hard to see how a default does not occur. And then what happens then? You know that, and then people start talking about exits of Greece from the eurozone and 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 things of that because, you know, does a country like Germany want to be tied up with a credit rating with someone like Greece? Um, probably not. Although Germany has benefited wonderfully from the weakening euro, I was just going to say this. So this, Greece says, "You're welcome, Germany. <laughs> You're welcome." Um, this is taking me back a few years to. Gosh, it's been six years. I mean, this is when yeah. uh, when you and uh, a couple of our colleagues went over to Greece. Um, you were there when the riots were going on. 
first round. The first round. And um, and that was one of the things we talked about at the time is, okay, so what is, if this is going on in Greece and you're the average investor, whether you're in the United States or the UK or Australia or whatever, and your first thought could be, well, I don't really have any exposure to Greece. I'm not in a shareholder of Greek banks. I'm fine. But then the question becomes, what what is the containment possibility? What is the what are the odds that this just stays Greece's problem? Or as you indicated, does this become something that now the entire Eurozone has to deal with? Yeah, I mean their sovereign debt is tied to the sovereign debt of other European countries. Their sovereign debt is held by large European banks. Um, so to the extent they default and those banks are forced to start marking that debt down, that hits their capital ratios, it hits their credit ratings, and that's where you get, you know, the the C word contagion. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how long this has been going on. And, and I, you know, if people go back five, six years to when we were talking about it, you know, I, I had initially been very bearish on the euro and the, and the EU. And then after the trip had said, you know, this generation of political leadership in Europe, um, the, you know, the, the EU is their calling card. I mean, this is their legacy. And so there's no there's no incentive for them to, to dismantle it. Um, and European voters gave them five or six years to try to fix things. The global economy didn't really cooperate. Ultimately, they weren't as effective at fixing things as maybe they might have hoped they would have been. And now what's happened here in Greece with Syriza is that 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 political generation that was committed to the EU has been voted out. Um, And it's even probably lazy to say that the the Greeks who were in power prior to this were committed to the EU. They were in a sense. But I mean, this new generation has has not a care. Not a care for the EU. And I would suspect, and I do suspect, that there are similar generational tendencies coming up now in Spain, in France, in Italy, in Germany, um, who do not have any sentiment for the EU or for a, a unified Europe. And when they get into power, you know, what barriers exist? To, I, don't know, I don't know what dismantling looks like because at no point is it codified anywhere how you go about taking this thing apart. Um, it's rumored that a lot of these countries have actually kept their currency. They didn't, they didn't destroy it. They just put it away. Just buried it somewhere yeah, in a, in it's a just vault? Yeah, sitting in a closet, ready to come back if they needed it to. So, who, But I don't know what that looks like. But without that, without that political class keeping everything together and being very civil at the negotiating table over some very sticky problems, you know, who's to say that, that this wouldn't all unravel on them? And, and what unraveling looks like is probably very destabilizing for, for the entire world. So we should keep our eyes open to the next European election, wherever that occurs, and see if if there is a similar candidate pushing a similar platform. And certainly, I mean, you know, people have already been watching some of the state elections in Germany, and and then you know, anti-European folks have been winning some of those. Um, but certainly, that would be the the bellwether to watch for in terms of where sentiment is going in Europe, because I, I think popularly the EU is is deeply unpopular. Um, and becoming more so because, frankly, it's made life harder for most people, except for those Germans who continue to export <laughs> export at a pace. <laughs> Let's move on to Apple. Uh, Apple's fourth quarter, if you're keeping these types of records, uh, the most profitable quarter in corporate history, $75 billion in sales, $18 billion in profit. Revenue in China grew by 70%. I think that there were, I know that there were people that were expecting Apple 
to beat expectations as it has done. This is now the fourth quarter in a row. So I think that, you know, you didn't have to look hard to find someone who was expecting them. I don't know that anyone was expecting this. Yeah, this was a monster, a monster quarter. Stock is up today. Um, you know, kudos to them. Obviously, it is. Um, what's interesting, though, just to throw a little, you know, be, be the naysayer on, on what is Apple Day across the global markets. Um, you know, iPod, iPad sales continued their secular decline. The iPod got demoted from its own product category to now just being part of other. Right. It's no longer being broken out. And this is now Apple is, you might as well, you could call it the iPhone company. It is the iPhone company. Um, huge success with the iPhone 6, 6 Plus. Uh, the big screen thing worked out very well for them. Execution in China was outstanding. You know, China actually recently, I know this having just been there, they did their first ever net promoter score survey. And I think Apple and smartphones scored a 45, positive 45, which is good. Um, they were That was 20 points ahead, number two, who was Samsung, Samsung, which was 25. And so, you know, for all the struggles Apple had had- A net promoter is just like- How many, the scale one to 10, would you recommend this product to a friend? Nine or 10 gets you a positive score. I think three to seven gets you nothing. And one to two detract, you have a negative score. Um, so it's just everybody who has an Apple product, loves it, would recommend it to their friends. And so- yeah, that, that's a huge advantage in that market. You know, people were talking about domestic competitors, Xiaomi, for example, and it, it seems like Apple, Apple with its brand equity, continues to have a serious advantage in that market, which they finally exploited this past quarter by putting out a phone that people in China really wanted. Um, so, unbelievable quarter for them. You know, where Apple goes from here probably depends on your opinion of whether or not the iPhone is a product or the iPhone is a platform. If you think it's a product, Apple's probably overvalued. And because that product will inevitably wane in popularity, and they don't really have anything coming up to replace it. The iWatch is supposed to come out this year. I'm a little bit skeptical of that launch. Obviously, the iPad is, is already dying, and the iPod is gone. Um, if you believe, however, the iPhone is a platform, which it will become you know, ubiquitous, it already is, in, in a sense, ubiquitous, and that they will sell more and more apps and songs and you know, what have you, um, then, I th- then, then this embedded platform is probably a cash machine for many, many years to come, and, and, and you'd be optimistic about Apple stock from here. One small number gave me pause, which is that the number of stores that Apple has in China is four. Not 400, not 4,000, four. And they expect to have 40 a year from now. I mean, that alone, when you look at the, the sales that they're putting up in China, just that alone makes me think, well... I hear everything you're saying about sort of there there are no annuities with products and and certainly the disparity between the iPhone and pretty much everything else that Apple makes is is getting larger and larger but boy the next 12 to 18 months in China probably look pretty good in terms of iPhone sales. Yeah, I would I would I would assume so. Um I mean, you know, they had the highest net promoter score of any brand in the country. I mean, that's remarkable. It gives them a huge platform on which to grow. Uh, the product is popular. Uh, you know, they are signed up with China Mobile now, which is the country's largest carrier. So, I mean, you know, a lot of tailwinds for them going forward. Um, you know, but, you know, people need to remember that stocks are not valued for one to two years of earnings. They're valued for, dec- you know, decades of earnings. Terminal values often create the most value in a conventional valuation methodology. But, uh, no, you're absolutely right, I think. And I think this took people, it certainly took people by surprise just how well they did. Let's talk about your trip to China, and I'm I'm curious, uh, sort of who you met with, the the types of companies that you're meeting with, and and what you're interested in. But 
um, I just want to set this up as sort of your trip is against the backdrop of China's growth rate in 2014, which was 7.4%, which if the U.S. had a growth rate of 7.4%, we'd, you know, we'd be throwing a parade every day. Um, but in China, that's the lowest level in almost 25 years. So before we get to the types of businesses you were looking at, what is the general mood, if there is one, of, of the people that you were meeting with about China's economy and, and what the next few years look like in terms of overall economic growth? The general sentiment was, was pretty pessimistic, um, with pessimism being defined as GDP growth rates of 5, five to 6%. Um, you, know, you mentioned that would be high for, for the U.S., but in China, that's low in the sense that there are, there's a huge gap between the wealthy and the, and the poor in China, and, and a growth rate of 5 or 6% doesn't continue this progress they've made over the last 20 years of lifting more and more people out of poverty and into urbanization and into the sort of middle class, what they would define as the middle class. And when that stops, when that social mobility stops, um, that potentially becomes problematic in a, in a variety of ways. So, you know, China spent freely in the 09 period to prop up, to keep their economy chugging along, even as the world slowed down. And and now, the, the people I, talk, I, I spoke to seem to think that there's a reckoning coming for a lot of that debt. So, um, you know, people are aware, for example, of all the money they spent on, on railroads. And, um, you know, and, and yet still, we're, you know, have had some high-profile railroad accidents. And now the Ministry of Rail, who's the head of who has been uh, detained on corruption charges, no surprise, but this is another headwind in China is this new corruption crackdown they're doing. You know, as they give up legitimacy in the economic realm, potentially, they're trying to reclaim it a little bit on the, on the, uh, uh, on the corruption angle. Uh, the new premier, Xi Jinping, has, has been taking out people left and right for being dishonest, which he should. But um, and, and that debt got transferred to what's now called the China Railway Corporation. Had a very interesting meeting with a, a, a listed railway company called Guangshan Railways. Um, and the conversation with analysts there centered around the idea that Guangxian Railways may be given a bunch of rail, new railroads, a good thing, but in exchange for being given, given quote-unquote, these railroads, they would also be given, quote-unquote, a metric ton of debt that used to belong to the China Railway, that used to belong to the Ministry of Rail, then now belongs to the CRC, and will soon belong to foreign shareholders. Um, so it's those sorts. How of, does that trade look? Right. I mean, that, you know, and that it's those sorts of unknowns. Those sorts of, you know, it's not shenanigans, but it 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 it's not good either. Um, you know, and, and there was another very interesting presentation about the likelihood of Chinese tax revenue uh, or government uh, revenues going way down this year. And the reason is that a lot of the revenue that they have been getting to balance their books over the past few years has been from land sales. Um, if people don't know, all land in China is technically owned by the government, and you get to lease it for a period of time, and then they sell it. They sell from their block to developers and, and whatnot in order to fund a lot of their operations. Um, land sales are dr- dramatically declining because there's not as much interest in developing property right now in China because there's been overdevelopment. And to the, the decline would even be more severe right now if not for these, what I believe the presenter called like government backed financing vehicles, which is basically private companies but that have been set up, but that have been completely funded by local governments to then buy land from the local government. It's basically a Ponzi scheme. They're just moving money around in order to- What is, the, what is this euphemism again? Uh, I think it was called local government financing vehicles, LGFVs, LGFCs. 
Local government financing corporation. It's just a sort of a blanket term for any of the quasi-private public company that's being given money by the government to then go in. So and we'll give you little private company this money, and you buy land from us. Correct. That absolutely sounds like a Ponzi scheme. And then they report that as revenue, and but and the share of those as numbers of transactions. But eventually, that runs out of steam because the the circle has to stop. You run out of money, and so this person was forecasting that that's, that would stop 2015, 2016, and then all of a sudden you've got local governments that can't balance their books, and then anybody, um, any bank that has lent to those local governments or those local state-owned um, state-owned corporations, all of a sudden that debt comes due, they can't pay it, causes a banking crisis, and then the, you, have, you have a big problem. And so the amount of debt floating around the Chinese economy that probably can't be serviced is, is a large number, and there's a question about how severe a slowdown, what a severe slowdown looks like when that all becomes known and realized. And so there was a lot of deep skepticism around some of those macro themes in, in, in China, and I think for good reason. I'm assuming... And against that backdrop, the Chinese stock market just rallied like heck last year. So, I am assuming that you were not looking at real estate companies while you were out there, that you were... Not for buying. Not, not for buying. Um, did anything... For morbid interest. <laughs> yeah. Did anything catch – did you see any of those uh, – what are they called? Ghost malls? Did you see – like, did you – I have not. I, I, I was only in Beijing. Okay. You know, there were, those are in, like, second, third-tier cities? Yeah, I mean, Ordos is the famous ghost city. Um, you can find some – I mean, there are some developments on the outskirts of Beijing that are, I mean, huge buildings in the middle of nowhere – seemingly nobody living there. That are completely empty. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what stage of development they're in. Sometimes things can look finished and they're not. But What caught your attention um, as an investor? Um, I think of the, of the companies I saw, uh, I, I would say the, the company I was most impressed with um, is Chunar, which is a U.S. listed company. It's a subsidiary of Baidu, and they do uh, online travel listings. And what's interesting about Chunar is that they come out of Baidu. They're majority owned by Baidu, so they have a very strong tech heritage. They're very committed to analytics. Um, and, you know, and these aren't things that in China are <coughs> as popular as they are here. And so they're just really they're getting going in terms of selling, uh, having tickets and hotels sold through their, their search engine, which basically just ranks on two things, price and relevance. Now, that, that sounds very logical, but it's very different from the, uh, the entrenched competitor, uh, C-Trip, um, who was founded decades ago was, is more of a phone-oriented call center business, and you know C-Trip is charging four to five percent take rates for the airlines, ten to twelve percent take rates for the hotels, and Baidu is coming to the, and and I'm sorry, Chunar is coming to the market saying we'll do two percent on plane tickets and five percent on hotels, and so they're just dramatically undercutting uh, C-Trip, and they're doing so in a very calculated way, and you know if you believe that they're going to take a lot of C-Trip's profit pool. Um, you know, that's very bad for C-Trip and potentially very good for Chunar. And I, and I sort of like where they're positioned. But I was just impressed by how savvy, and this is true of Baidu as well. One of the reasons we've long respected them is just that their mindset is very, um, is different from what you would normally encounter in China in terms of thinking about the long term, thinking about what your competitive advantage is and how to take that advantage to the edge. And then, you know, winning with technology instead of winning with manual processes and people. You know, in China, labor for a long time was very, very cheap. If you had a problem, you just threw people at it. And so technology companies in that sense were at a disadvantage because it was expensive to develop technology. But now labor, rates, labor inflation in China is quite rapid and people, companies whose heritage is throwing people at the problem, I think are in for um, a, a, a very rough go from here. 
All right, before we wrap up uh, with your travel tip, which I love, uh, I want to mention Motley Fool Stock Advisor again. It's our flag- flagship service, um, and you can find out more by going to marketfoolery.fool.com. Uh, that's Motley Fool Stock Advisor, run by David and Tom Gardner, co-founders of The Motley Fool. Go to marketfoolery.fool.com, and get 75% off your subscription, so check it out. Um, I know this because I follow you on Twitter, um, and you were you were sending out tweets during your trip. Um, how are your lungs, by the way? I know how I sound, but I also oh. know that <laughs> that Beijing, the air in Beijing, the week I was there was was. I mean, it was a catastrophe, a I, challenge. I mean, I enjoy. Safe to assume you were not running outside. I did not run outside. I you know I did try to walk. I do like to walk, and and I, I think that's the best way to get to know a city and to orient yourself. And I walked outside. You know, I was I was going to do a. I looked at, at the map, and it was a mile and a half to walk from where I had some meetings to where I wanted to go to lunch. And I said, oh, I'll make that in 15 minutes. So I take off at my brisk pace, and within five minutes, I mean, my lungs were on fire. <laughs> and I don't attribute that to being me being woefully out of shape. Um, but that was, I mean, it was just apparently the readings that were coming out of the air quality indicators those few days were atrocious. And ugh, I hope that's, you know, that's one of those things that, China's to have the bright future everybody thinks it has. I mean, they need to solve the just the air quality myriad ecological disasters they are foisting upon their their country. So you um, you rely on something when you're um, in a different country or a different city. Um, you rely on something outside of just Yelp recommendations and that sort of thing when you're looking for a place to eat, and that is standing in line with locals. Yeah, if you see a line stand on it that's that's our rule of thumb I mean, it doesn't matter how long it is just i mean I, the, the 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 great the origins of this go back six seven eight years to singapore we were at a hawker food stall um building where there are you know a hundred food stalls that are almost unlabeled basically and you just walk around trying to figure out what you want to eat and so we were sitting at the table eating our noodles and 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 uh and all of a sudden Somebody, you know, there's a there's a closed food stall like the the um, the, the door. shutters. Yeah, the door is is down, and all of a sudden, you know, a group of girls gets online. The line starts growing, and it's not open yet. And the door is still closed. The door is closed, and it's not lit. It doesn't appear to be opening. There's no light, and you know, and so the line got to be about thirty people long. And I and I said, Bill, I was like, all right, it was you and Bill, man. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna go stand on that line. He's like, what is it for? And I was. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but the locals are lining up for it. And so about 10 minutes go by, and all of a sudden the lights turn on, door opens, and it turns out to be this um, turns out to be this bean custard place. And the bean custard was deli- – and thankfully I was online. So they had – as I found out while standing online, they had, uh, they had a minimum order or a maximum order of five bean custards. You couldn't order more than five. Oh, okay. And they had a – you know, a cooler full of them because I guess they take a while to set, and so there's, they make them and then they, and they and they sell out. And so I was like, they had 500, and so I was like the 40th person online, and I mean, or the 50th person online because there were only like 10 or 15 left. They were all sold out of vanilla. Everyone's getting the max. Everybody was getting the max, and I go up <laughs> and I'm like, I'll have, uh, I'll just have one, please. And then Bill, why did you give me one? I was like, well, you just said a lot. So that's the origins of it. You know, it pays off in uh, in in any. It's particularly strong at any food stall food truck it works with food trucks like if you're in austin texas you're at the food truck festival which where do i go pick the one with the longest line. the one with the longest line. oh yeah it's always worth it always worth it 
That's a great tip. You can read more from Tim Hansen by going to fullfunds.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, and you pick up tips like standing in line with locals. Thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>